This week in quotes, joining us from Korea, Jungang Daily editor Jim Bully here in the studio. Good morning to you. Good morning. Okay, the first quote is from the foreign minister, Kang Kyung-hwa. I have to admit, Jim, when I first saw the, the quotes uh, being assigned today, I, I thought, was this a repeat of I a know, quote? We, that, yeah. You thought that too, <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. we had the husband issue, and then we had this other thing where she was talking about, you know, about uh, being in a male-dominated uh, situation where they're not listening to me and what have you. Similar along those lines, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, two of the three quotes today are things we've, we've, we've covered extensively. But back in the news, today's quote from Kang kyung is... There are times when I ask myself whether I'm really being accepted in a male-dominated culture of vested interests. So this has sort of become a talking point in the last few months, probably prompted by the thing where Kang kyung husband flew off to America in the middle of a global pandemic to buy a yacht. Um, this idea of, of how... Um, I guess the, the people are sort of taking stock of how Kang's done as Korea's first uh, female foreign minister, um, and she's talking quite openly about uh, the restrictions that that she's dealt with um, in that role. A couple of weeks ago, she was at the National Assembly. We talked about that as well, talking about how um, you know she's done what she can to overcome the sort of male-dominated culture, but there's only so much that she right. can do. Um, this is very much the same thing. She was speaking um, at the Future Dialogue for Global Innovation. Uh, forum, I suppose, organized by Korea's foreign ministry and uh, TVN mm. to a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, um, about her role. Uh, and she gave a number of, you know, fairly open remarks. I'm working very hard in this important position of being the first female foreign minister. But there are times when I feel myself asking, is this kind of response because I'm a woman? You know, so she's yeah. she's fairly open about the fact that it's not easy to be the first um female foreign minister of a country which, like um, all of the other countries, has traditionally had a fairly male-dominated society and certainly government and foreign service. Yeah, I mean, certainly a pertinent question by uh, Jared Diamond, uh, professor of the greatest university in the world, in in my humble opinion. (laughs) But (laughs) with Kang, though, I think a lot of us kind of get taken aback by when she kind of shows that more vulnerable and human side because maybe this is just my own personal. She is such a charismatic person figure, uh, and she is quite eloquent. I mean, her English is more eloquent than mine, and you, you see her carry herself on the stage, you think, wow, she, she can brush anything off, but just like any other human being, I mean, there are difficulties involved, and there is still, unfortunately, that, as you point out, inherent, um, we can say, sexism, but uh, just a male-dominated hierarchy that's existed for centuries that uh, Korea is not necessarily unique to, but uh, certainly it is uh, present here. Yeah, absolutely, and, and Kang does carry herself with such poise it's 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 almost more dramatic when she yeah. does um talk openly about these things also it's unusual for a korean government um official to sort of essentially criticize korean society in this way but you know deserve it i think there's also a couple of times recently um where there have been talk in the media of kang being sort of bypassed um the most notable i think is probably when uh the ministry of foreign affairs didn't have anything visible to do with the recent sort of improvement in relations with Japan, which was very centered on the National Intelligence Mm. Service. Um, Also, Mike Pompeo's recent cancellation of a scheduled trip to South Korea. These have all sort of led to rumors that that, that Kang is to some extent sort of being marginalized. But again, you know, there is an argument that the very nature of those rumors are sexist as well. Like, would, would we be making the same assertions if it was a male... Um, Minister of Foreign Affairs. The US Secretary of State's decision not to visit Korea quite possibly has absolutely nothing to do with that one government yeah. official. Similarly, the channels on which uh, international um, you know, conversations, dialogue happen are always very, very diverse. So 
it could be that the very nature of talking about her being bypassed is also, you know, largely because she's a woman. And it it does feel like the the numerous quotes that are coming out and the reason we focus on is it feels like we are transitioning into a bit of a swan song for the foreign minister because there are rumored uh, uh, cabinet uh, reshuffles uh, that are imminent and uh, it does look like the foreign minister uh, position will be uh, one of those spots uh, that will be uh, changed. Let's turn to our second quote here. Uh, This is from the Japanese foreign minister, a little bit of a, a gleeful trolling, I believe, going on here. Yeah, so Japanese Foreign Minister Toshimitsu Motegi, he says, uh, the Sea of Japan will remain on paper at the end. Now, this is the somewhat convoluted news that the International Hydrographic Organization, which I know is one of your favorite international organizations, Mm -hmm. um, reached an agreement Monday to name global seas with numerical codes rather than specific names. Now, this is, of course, uh, the Korea's sort of ongoing protest um, at the labeling Uh, of uh, Korea's East Sea as the Sea of Japan, um, which harks back to colonial era. In fact, when the when the the IHO assembly first convened its session, where they named all the seas, it was still during the colonial period, and that's how that got on the map. Korea's been protesting it since then. Korea has been pushing for both names to be included on maps. Um, the IHO, in the end, in in sort of a I guess an attempt to not annoy anybody, has gone with um, this decision to use. numbers, uh, which obviously um, Korea can claim as something of a victory. In theory, Sea of Japan will no longer be the proper name of um, the sea that separates Korea. However, you know, realistically, names are still going to appear on a lot of maps. So Japan are also claiming a victory because no one's changed the name and chances are Sea of Japan is still going to be appearing on a lot of physical maps. Yeah, I mean, I made the comparison before. It was kind of akin to sort of that uh, Solomon splitting the baby type of decision. We're going to try to kind of have it where we don't upset both sides too much, where now the result is neither side can feel particularly super aggrieved, but obviously neither side is completely satisfied with it. But uh, Japan certainly going to be uh, spinning it publicly as a a victory for them, because as you say, in practice, a lot of the existing maps uh, won't have to necessarily uh, republish and and, and change the wording on on their labeling of the sea between uh, Korea and Japan. Yeah, and it's also true that on like very nautical documents like uh, navigation software used in ships and things like that, it's always been numerical designations anyway. So how much impact this decision is going to have is... you know, very unclear. But if both Korea and Japan can claim a sort of empirical victory, then maybe it helps reduce tensions a little bit. Well, uh, claiming victory is something that, again, you said an update on the uh, quotes uh, that we saw from last week. Uh, The U.S. President uh, Trump, uh, current president, uh, outgoing president, I think most of the world uh, believes, uh, has a very simplistic quote uh, that uh, I guess is par for the course. Yeah, so I mean, the quote we chose is, I won the election. I mean, it's all in capitals because it comes from a tweet on Sunday. But honestly, it could come from any day in the last (laughs) two weeks. Um, This is, of course, President Trump falsely and flat out claiming um, that he won the election. Uh, I I guess the interesting point is that that we've seen in the last couple of weeks that that Twitter has started... um, flagging these as, as, you know, potentially untrue. Um, The original sort of angle that we were going for with this was um, the sort of strange series of tweets on Sunday where where Trump appeared to sort of vaguely concede the election by saying that Biden won um, and then uh, immediately took it back again when he realized what he'd done um, and said he only won in the eyes of the fake news media. But of course, 
there's more news every single day. And just in the last few hours, we've seen this very bizarre press conference um, in the US of uh, Trump's top lawyers, again, doubling down on this idea that they're convinced that they definitely won the election and seeming to suggest a conspiracy led by Biden himself to uh, fake the election results. Yeah. And so this is so far outside the norms of social behavior, uh, outside democratic norms, and it, it would be distressing Uh, in any era of American politics. But the fact that it it is Trump and the fact that this behavior is not surprising just from the track record that he's demonstrated over the course of uh, many years perhaps has kind of dulled the impact of this. But you kind of get this kind of foreboding sense that the way the country has been split and and the fact that uh, indeed a lot of people did come out to vote for him, it it was relatively closer than a lot of people expected that Should there come a time that there is another charismatic uh, figure that has sort of the same ideas that Trump has, but is far more Machiavellian, is far more competent, is far more cunning in the way they could engineer this kind of sowing discord and doubt within the electoral process? I I know that there's a cliche that the institutions are holding in America, but that that does seem tenuous at best, in my opinion. Yeah. And when you mention um, how close the election was, I think that that makes a very good point, because I'm a I'm a student of U.S. politics. And if the Biden campaign did rig the election, they did an incredibly bad job. Yeah. Like it's it's unbelievable that you would that if there was widespread fraud as the Trump campaign um, claims that it would be this close or in this obvious, you know, this yeah. many obvious. And then lose the Senate states. and then lose seats in the House as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if it is, if it is a conspiracy, which it, it isn't, but if it is, it's a really, really bad one. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, a lot of people would say, how, how would you engineer 50 states? They have their own sort of sovereign um, ability to oversee their own elections. It would be like someone there was one sort of supreme leader of Europe and you were able to engineer an entire election, yeah. uh, electoral fraud with Brussels, uh, it, within London, within Paris, and trying to get all of their separate electoral systems to all kind of be cohesive and trying to... Yeah, uh, and also managing to pull that off in, in almost exclusively states run by your friends because yeah. they're largely yeah. geo, you know, Republican, Republican states with Republican-controlled state authorities who are in charge of elections. Yeah, well... Already two and a half weeks uh, removed from uh, the election day, and uh, we don't have a concession. Once again, uh, the concession is not needed to certify the votes and uh, to have the transition take place. But uh, uh, obviously, this is the state that we're in right now as we look at uh, what's going on in the U.S. All right, Jim, we're going to leave it there. As always, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thank you, too.